I, I was interested in all material. I mean, what I really th- found out is that sculpture for me was not about copying things. There'd been, I mean, like 19th century and most of the 20th century, a lot of sculpture has been about copying some reality and making it in another material, like a figure or a horse or whatever. I mean, and that's a pretty boring, tedious thing to do. So I'm not interested in copying the things that are there. I was, I became, I wanted to make the things that are not there. Welcome to Gentleman Lars. My name is Lars Carlin, and in this and the next episode of Gentleman Lars, you will meet the well-known British sculptor Tony Cragg. But let's start by asking a question to Stefan Andersson, who is the founder of GSA Gallery, since GSA Gallery is the Swedish gallery representing Tony Cragg. Stefan, how did you get in touch with Tony Craig? Well, it's a long story. I, I learned about his works in the 80s. Uh, I saw an exhibition in, in New York in the late 80s, and uh, I didn't know much about him. I thought he was American from, from the States. And uh, <clears throat> after some years, I understood that he was British. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> But I didn't know where he was uh, uh, living and working. And in the mid-90s, I visited the art fair in Köln, in Cologne, in Germany. And on my way back from the art fair, I I walked through the bookstore. And I found a book, uh, a green book with essays by Tony Cragg. So I bought it to have something to read on the plane. And uh, at the end of the book, it said... Wuppertal, 1996, probably. So I realized the guy is living in Germany. And I was in Cologne. I mean, it was by then just like 100 kilometers away from, from him. So when I came home, I, at that time you could call Telia Utlandsupplysningen, uh, Telia, the, the, the foreign phone book. Uh, and I asked about uh, Tony Craig in Wuppertal in Germany, and I got the telephone number. And uh, the thing is, he is extremely difficult to reach on the phone. He never picks up the phone. But at that time, the telephone kept ringing, and nobody answered the phone, so he picked up the phone, which is, uh, was just uh, the chance in a million. So I presented myself, and... Uh, uh, said some nice things about him and, as, and I asked him if I could come and visit. And he has this, um, this quality that uh, he never says no. Uh, so he said, yes, yeah, sure, come by, thinking that I would never come because I called from northern Sweden. But uh, So that's how we met. Uh, and this, this must have been in, in 1990. Seven, if I remember right. Now, let's talk to Tony Cragg and hear about how he became a sculptor. I ended up in a laboratory in the late uh, 60s working, in the, and it was very boring. I mean, I was just a, a, a lowly laboratory assistant, 
But it wasn't very interesting to be there. And then I, then I thought, uh, and I had to spend time in the evenings and uh, the weekends following the experiments. And I started to just started to draw. I mean, doodle, if you like. I'd never had any art uh, training in uh, in school. I don't know why that worked out, but it, I'd never. I don't can't remember any art lessons and so I just did that and then after a while <laughs> the drawings became more interesting for me to be doing as an activity than the work I was paid to do so I took the consequence and then worked then went to art school uh, which was a surprise upset my parents and my dad especially and then uh, after that um, went to art school with the idea of drawing learning something about drawing and painting or whatever and in the middle of the first course, which was a kind of general course where you try to print and work in ceramics and paint and all sorts of things, which are where you make sculpture. And so next next week you'll, you'll be doing making sculpture for a couple of weeks. And uh, and I went into this uh, quite unwillingly. Actually, I didn't really it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't something I wanted to do. But on the Monday morning we started this course, and I pick up some materials and start to do this and that and I just got so engaged in doing it and I realized it was even more exciting than drawing because every time you move the material every time you change the volume or the shape the outline or whatever you had completely different sort of emotion or a different idea about it and uh, became fantastic uh, it became yeah it mesmerized me actually so that was I think maybe one of the strongest moments that I ever had when I was when I was there and there are other times when I was actually then already in art school a little bit further on down the line and uh, actually on a painting course. And uh, somebody said very nicely, you know, you know, really, this is not going to work out with you doing what you're doing with found materials and stuff. And we're painting because, you know, I mean, people just step backwards to look at their painting and tread on my sculpture. And then I would return. <laughs> saw something in half and then get sawdust in there to paint. paint. So it doesn't work out. And so they sent me down to the sculpture department and um, there were two elderly grey-haired men with beards, sculptors in a classic form. And they looked at what I'd been doing and they sh kind of just shook their head. And they said, Craig, whatever you think this is, it's not sculpture. So, <laughs> and they just sent me back, sent me back to uh, this, uh, to the painting department, which, but, you know, I, I found solution working in corridors and stuff like that. And then, and so, the, but this was important to me because it made me realise, um, you know, in Britain in the, in the, at that period, there's, there was Henry Moore and Hepworth and all of these sculptors, which had Armitage, Chadwick, a whole sleuth of, of really good sculptors in a sort of postmodern humanitarian way, fig, vaguely figurative work. And then there'd been the sort of challenge by people like Anthony Caron, Philip King, Tim Scott, and all these the heavy welders. And they didn't last very long. Then immediately there was a new generation of Richard Long, Gilbert and George, Barry Flanagan, and uh, Bruce McLean. And they came on the heels of this. So there was already four, three, in a way, three dimensions, three, three, three generations of people battling it out. And just as a student, I was only 20, so now I just realised, wow, the way they talk, the aggression and the passion, if you like, 
of the the level of the the discourse was very high and very very energetic and i i didn't realize it was about something it wasn't just making interesting things it was it had there were so many aspects to it and and it was really uh, so i think that was something that really woke me up in the 60s and 70s i mean to do an ma was a very rare occurrence there were two 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 study places in 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 the royal college of art and uh, and i was taken on there which was a prize to me and for them i think fundamentally and um that was a fantastic opportunity three years of of a real studio with with sculptors around me and i learned so much in that period and it was one of the you know i mean it was a real that's why i would defend art education to the to the limit you know it was wonderful experience to do that and what did you learn then at that period well a lot about materials i mean i i was still i didn't have any money so i mean i just most of the material i, I was interested in all material I mean, what i really th- found out is that sculpture for me was not about copying things there'd been i mean like 19th century and most of the 20th century a lot of sculpture has been about copying some reality and making it in another material like a figure or a horse or whatever i mean and that's a pretty boring tedious thing to do so i'm not interested in copying the things that are there i was i became i wanted to make the things that are not there and i of course it's a big thing we what it what how do we know what's not there so that that was the basic sort of attitude that i think i i i accumulated in that time so a lot of information about i had a bicycle a tandem which nobody ever rode with me so i modified it into a kind of thing at the back to collect materials and collect collect all the materials bring it into the studio much and where where did you go to collect it oh everywhere i mean uh, bomb sites building sites uh, the thames uh, embankment uh, anywhere i think i could you know i mean just roam around look for stuff and whatever and i almost actually challenged myself i mean kind of in a sort of somewhat anti-aesthetic way i wanted to uh make things you know even you know polystyrene make it in, make something meaningful out of it you know all this stuff that we make and human humans use have produce a lot of materials but we have side mainly the idea we forget that bronze glass and steel and all these things are actually artificial you know they don't exist in nature but uh or they need they need a little help to exist but most of the materials we use we we tend to treat them as something rather uh, you know an, an inferior product in some sense it's not natural product natural wood or i much prefer sort of chip wood to to a lump of oak or something i mean i hate cutting up a tree it's like dealing with a dead body but anyway so you have these uh things and so uh, the the range of materials i learned about what i what what those materials could be expressed to me in in a sense so another aspect of this the royal the royal college was actually we had this backyard and the, on the other side of the backyard was the natural history museum and the uh the geological museum and these were just fantastic i mean i spent i think most of my period of study in those museums i mean just looking just the mineralogists just the mineral studies or fossils or just 
uh, they, uh, I mean, um, they've destroyed it. They've made it into a sort of Mickey Mouse event place. But now, but at the time, it was full of these beautiful, I suppose, maybe even Victorian models of uh, geological structures as they were understood then. And they were beautiful. They were, they, they, I mean, so the whole idea, I mean, look at the landscape in front of us. Why does the landscape look like that? You know, and you see it, you see all these, see all those quartz veins running, rushing through and you realise, you know, what's, what's been some of the dynamic of, the, of, of what's created a landscape. Or you look at a human being, you wonder how, how the hell did you get to be that shape? You know, I mean, how did we, why do we look like this? You know, I mean, so, so it was the question of like the interiors of things or whatever. So that, that, all of those kind of things added up. It was an incredibly invaluable year, uh, uh, three years to move. And, and then Meadows sent me off to France he he just couldn't take it anymore. So he just he he came in one day with a little, a nice little guy and uh, what's his name, and he came in with a little beret. And, he, and then in England they we only knew the French because they used to come across on bicycles with onions on them. And they sell these onions. They're called onion johnnies. So he looked like an onion johnny actually. Adon Tessier was his name, and he was from the Ministry of Culture in uh, in France. And he just said they were looking for someone to go to uh, to spend time in 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 France, and write or make commentaries about uh, comparative commentary to the way art education worked in Britain and the way it worked in France. So, and that was a that was a fantastic event in life, really going there and for the first time. So I said, middle class, lower middle class English family, which is worse off than being working class, I think, in some ways. And, uh, you know, going there and finding, wow, you know, I mean, just, uh, you know, they have nice clothes, they have, uh, everything looks so, they just had a different way. Britain, after the Second World War, was quite a tough society. It was very little, it was very economically and I think even psychologically depressed. And um, the French somehow... <laughs> With their joie, joie de vivre, they somehow overcome that. You know, even the food tasted better than England. So, sorry, <laughs> it wasn't a surprise. Anyway, so uh, but that was so that was uh, a big big event for me, leaving Britain for a year and or nine months in all, and uh, learning French uh, and seeing another culture, and um, that 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 meant a lot to me. Yeah. So there were many things. Many when you are when you ask the question, it's not just one little thing or something. It's I, I was I've been incredibly lucky. I, I went to my first wife was German from Wuppertal, and I moved there after my studies in London in 1977. And uh, I worked in a factory for a while, sign painting signs and stuff. And uh, then um, at some point. Um, a friend was telling me about the art school in Dusseldorf, so I went down. He wanted to do something there, so I took, went down there because I'd learned a bit of German, so I could actually translate for him, and just end up uh, with talking to the director of the academy, uh, Norbert Cricker, at that time, just getting into a really good conversation with him, and he gave me a job. He he asked me if I wanted to work there. I mean, in the in the foundation year, it wasn't. It wasn't a major job. It wasn't a professorship or something. But it was, it was uh, it, for me. Uh, my wife was pregnant, and uh, it was a, an enormous, uh, meaningful opportunity for me to be able to get back 
into, you know, I was in a foreign country, didn't know anybody, and suddenly I was amongst this incredible academy with these wonderful artists and uh, in, a, in, a, in a cultural milieu, which was... And I still... It, 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 it amazed me then, and I think it still does today, actually, yeah. Is it very easy for you to adapt to different countries? I mean, because you lived in uh, France, Germany. A couple of minutes ago, you, you spoke Swedish with me. I mean, you <laughs> even learned that. Is it easy for you to come to a new place and be comfortable there and work? Yeah, I don't know, but I th- I saw, it's noticeable. I mean, I, I think that I, I went to seven schools, and I think that's not that doesn't say that's not even the amount of times we moved. I think we moved many, many more times than that, and I think that that just psychologically or preparedness to get on with the situation I'm in was was a little bit like that. So I don't, I never really th- thought about it until it was much too late to to make anything useful of it. But uh, I just, I mean, when you get into a situation and you just learn, you know. I mean, I arrived in France in the freezing cold in a town called Metz, which is really not, it's half French and it was, but it has some German German qualities to it. And uh, they uh, they didn't want me there because I was sent there by this guy from the ministry. And uh, so... Uh, the director of the play, he was pretty knocked with me. But anyway, and then uh, we just get it. You just start this, so you know, the, can you speak French? Est-ce que vous parlez français? Un petit point. <laughs> so just, and you know, you'll learn. And uh, and I had no choice. I just, there was nobody in France that time, the 60s, 70s, there wasn't people who didn't really speak much English. And, and in my the class I was given, I mean, I just, There was no, there was really nobody, and I had to, so I had to learn French. So no choice. So, and what would you say? What what age was your breakthrough as an artist? You have this idea of breakthrough. I'm not really sure that there is breakthrough. I mean, it's, that's quite honestly. I mean, uh, yeah, but when could you make a living out of your art? What what age? Well, you know, I mean, the thing is this, you don't, you're a young person, so you <laughs> can't really, but in the 60s and 70s, I mean, you didn't go to art school because you thought it was a career option. I mean, absolutely no chance of earning any money. The art world was minuscule. In London, I think there were seven galleries showing contemporary art. Today, there's 7,000. You know, I mean, there was one museum and the, and, and the, and the, and the Whitechapel, and, and that was it. You know, now there's places you can see art every on every street corner. So it was a kind of... You just went into it for some... I'm not one to idealise it, but it was there was some sort of ideal personal reason to do it so you ended up in art school with people who were painting serialist paintings minimal concept i mean the whole the whole panoply of of whatever art meant at the time so and uh, you know a breakthrough is like uh, it's more for me it's more sedimentary i mean it was it was the opportunities i was given to go to to the royal college the opportunities to go abroad uh, uh the Someone very that Nicholas Logsdale from the Listen Gallery, that was one of the seven galleries showing contemporary art. He showed artists like Richard Long and Carl Andre Donchad and etc. and and he was interested in my work at a very early age, at 1974 or something. He he called me up. I didn't know. He called me up and asked me if I wanted to 
if I if I he could visit the studio, which I thought, wow, that's amazing, you know. And then and then it, it, I mean, I didn't trust myself to do an exhibition or anything till till nineteen seventy nine or so much after I'd again after I'd left art school and and worked more or less on my own for a while, and um, and so. You know, I've just I've just been very lucky, fortunate, I suppose. So I mean, and breakthrough. I don't. I mean, then you get then there are the whole thing about people getting awards and stuff like that. So I mean, there are things like the uh, the Turner Prize in Britain is a very big number. And I don't. The thing is, I don't really know how these things. Into they don't really know how they help. And I know there are there is practical results, but somehow. Um, I don't really feel that that's sort of, you know, you, these prizes and awards, you, I really have the feeling they're not really for the person that gets the prize. It's really for, for the institution that's giving it, you know, so you end up in these sort of situation. But, I mean, all of the accumulation of, of one thing or another certainly uh, hasn't hurt, hurt my, uh, my, my situation, yeah. When you were a very young artist, how did you, you know, did you create all of the sculptures all by yourself then from the start? Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, I made, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the only reason, I mean, I thought you asked about a moment which actually maybe helped me greatly in my own mind, not practically, but in Britain at the time, when you finished your art school course, you, you, uh, You um, you did an exhibition which was called the diploma exhibition and and at that time I did a diploma exhibition which and it was incredibly well received it was a, a lot of public um, notice or whatever I mean and and so uh, that was the first time I realised for myself oh god you know people could be interested in this and my studio was on the road it was literally there's a big wire, uh, long fent window going down on on the pavement so. People just walked by, and it became you know people. I get into not. I never talked to them, but people would knock on the window, say thumbs up, or you know what, what the hell are you doing? Oh, you're going crazy today, you know. So it was a, it wasn't a performance, but it was a sort of rapport with with the public in in some little way. And so, what was your question? <laughs> no, I, I I asked if you made the sculptures all by yourself from yeah, the start because uh, I saw some on YouTube from your studio, and you have a lot of assistants and people working with you today. What I could see. Yeah. So I mean, what's the different? How you work with creating art today? Uh, if you compare to when when you started as an artist. 50 years <laughs> that's a difference i think when you're 20 year old then you're prepared to drive around the- yeah but, but okay but but i mean what's the difference when you have a lot of assistance and people around you uh, compared to when it's only when it was only you okay well the thing is you see i didn't have a so when i was in when i arrived in germany uh i didn't have a um a, a driving license so um For the first time, I had to get somebody because looking for materials and things. Um, especially, I got into making things with plastic fragments, and had to, I found that, that they you could get a lot of those down on the the banks of the Rhine, and so. I, but I couldn't get down there because I mean, I didn't have you know, my bicycle was a bit. So I had a guy. Was it plastic junk or what? Yeah, what was it? Just the stuff that was sort of washed up. I mean, now it's very. 
you know, then it was a material that nobody was interested in, in positive or negative, but it just made the whole Rhine very colourful all the way down. And uh, nowadays, of course, there's, there's, it's become a sort of environmental issue. So surprising to be, you know, almost 40 years later <laughs> that it's a kind of become a content in a way. But um, yeah, so I had a dr someone who dro drove for me. So he was then someone was helping me sort of move stuff. And when the first exhibitions came, I, I needed someone to help me move stuff and install the work. I mean, it was quite difficult to install it because it was in situ and whatever. So you end up, I ended up making habit of having people around me and working with so so. And initially it was just two or three or four people just doing odd jobs. And then what happened is that in, so I did a lot of exhibitions in the late 70s, I think 79, 80, 81, 82. Those, those early 80 years, I'm, I think I did 12 exhibitions in one year, which really almost killed me because it was it was more like a performance so sort of going somewhere finding the material finding the content finding the form making this making the work the whole nervousness of making things without really know what, what I was doing uh, um, and it got, there were just one or two things that just were over the top over the limit I did a show in the Whitechapel gallery then and I was so lucky because, I mean, those works were, they turned out very well. But I, I, I mean, but uh, it, it could have gone wrong. <laughs> it could have gone very badly wrong. And, and but there, so two things work together. There is, there's always a personal side and there's an art historical side, if you like. One is it was exhausting and I was becoming a little bit sort of overwrought doing, the, doing it. And the other thing is, I think something I realised with my generation of sculptors as well, or people making sculpture, is that this ready-made moment, which has been so important for the 20th century, people finding things, you know, from the pissoir onwards and soup cans and rabbit's feet and the fluorescent type, and finding stuff and bringing it into the art context and in that sort of giving it a new meaning, it became less relevant it became, you know, artists were rushing around the world trying to find new materials and new things for art. And then after a while, you just think, who cares? You know, is it more important what you do with it? You know, because, I mean, just a demonstration of sort of... And, and I started to realise that I'm not really... I wouldn't get much, you know, I'd stand in the, in the, in the, in the museum or in a, in a gallery in 82, 83, and with something I'd found, and I'd think, jeez... If I had more time and more ability, I could make something interesting, could make something. I have to do more than just find the damn thing and change its context and repress it. So, so then I started to remake, to make stuff. And then as the idea is not to just copy what I've found, then it was to, to somehow uh, extrapolate some information or some, some meaning out of it uh, from the stuff I'd found. And then make something new and that was that I, you know, I I needed that I needed people to help me because I didn't, I didn't I, the one thing I hadn't learned in art school was how to mix plaster for example you know I mean I didn't know how to do that that was that was kind of for me useless uh, sculpture stuff but so then we, we got into making things in plaster and then then casting the stuff and you know even to the extent where people think oh traitor traitor terrible turning your back on found things and rubbish and and or found materials and um 
starting to use materials like bronze. It's, it was like a kind of treachery or something. I mean, but but um, rubbish. But uh, that that was it was a necessary thing to go through. It's a stage I had to go through, and for that you end up these are, these are working techniques that are, that are too involved. You just make a work, two works a year if you're just stuck on that. That's never been my idea. I have too many things I want to make, and so so it is now in the studio. I mean, slowly the team's grown a little bit. Uh, I've got actually nine guys that are, or nine men that actually make work. Uh, only only men, no women, uh, woman. Well, no, there is a woman, but she's she's off at the moment. She's had had a child, but in the part, the men are much better. Uh, uh, well, there's a big difference. The men are better. Uh, the men the men are much more durable and much more prepared to uh, do uh, some some of the hard work uh, with me and some of because I it is I mean it really is hard work, physically tough. Uh, and uh, the women that, that have worked for me, which have been very few, they are fantastic because they have a different energy. Where if you really want something f beautifully finished off, then the women will do it. You know, so that that is. I mean, it's, I don't want to. I mean, I know I'll be crucified for making some stupid cliche, but I mean, this is what it is like. And so, if you can't accept it, that's the way it is. But uh, that just generally, they're doing kind of changing, cutting up. Really, these guys, they have to wear masks and suits and things to protect their ears. And it really is, you know, they're sweating like hell and we're working like hell to actually make the form. And uh, we just notice that um, that's that's the way it works better for me. And but, but how does it work? Do you come with a sketch and, and then they make it for you? No, no, no. That's exactly what I don't want to do because, I'm, well, yes, I mean, it's a, a sketch as well to start. I mean, that all my work starts with the drawing, with drawings. I mean, that's what I primarily doing quite honestly but I mean um, but once you start I then have to translate the drawings into smaller works to see how they go so I'm still involved making those smaller things whatever and then if something looks like it's becoming meaningful or interesting then I then I'll start to uh, make bigger things slightly larger sculpture and then develop it out of that thing but I'm not a designer so Uh, and I don't really know when, I, at any point, where the where the end thing will be, because you can't. You know, I'm not making sculptures; not necessarily spontaneous. But if you keep a steady pressure on the process, you 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 have lots of moments where you break through your own possibilities and end up doing something which is really more interesting than what you've set out to do and this is for me if you like the create the um, it's what poesis is mine that's what the greeks when you say but it's you can say it's sculptures like that but it's like when you're writing i mean you're a writer so you write the thing you write a sentence now change it round put a different word in and change the ending put a new and so you play plastically with the sentence and sometimes you write sentences which are much more meaningful and much more beautiful than what you ever th ever thought And so finding a form in the material for something that's, that's poesis, that is Greek, uh, ancient Greek, that's, that's creation, poetry. So, I mean, and that's really what you're aiming for in, um, in any uh, creative, in any endeavor like that. But it's also something that's not going to just, auto, it's not, there's no guarantee. You, so you just keep going, you know, I mean, I keep going. But, but, I mean, do I understand you right that the sketch is one thing and then the result end result could be something quite different? 
The sketches, you can see, I know, when I see the end work, I know where the sketch, where the sketch is inside the work. <laughs> but they, they do inevitably look different, yeah, because then we start to build it. And what I wanted to do is, I mean, in the 80s, I mean, there was people used to say, let it be made. You know, so you'd send the, you know, send the drawing off from a model and somebody somewhere, a workshop would make it for you. And I did it once and it was a disaster and the thing comes back. I had no idea what it is. You know, I mean, I have no relationship to it. Uh, so I realized I have to be more involved, be more present. So the way I wanted it is to have a studio. It's like a palette. And everything is more, all the ingredients and all the energy is there, all the people moving stuff and me moving stuff. And so till I suddenly feel, yes, that, that is what I want. That's what I want to go, okay? Wow, I didn't know that. So these are the exciting moments of making stuff. There's a lot of things you're like, mm hmm yes, I know how to do this. And you can, but then you get, push it, push it, push it. And then suddenly some, you're ending, wow, I didn't know that was possible or the, that, that, that emotion or that, that, that idea is new in, the, in, in what I'm seeing. So that, that's what... That's how it works for me. And the time it takes to make, I mean, from the sketch to the, to the finished sculpture, is that very different from different sculpt sculptures you make? How long time it takes? Well, actually, it was a theme for this morning because I was talking to someone. We're actually making 34 sculptures, which is quite a lot. But some of them I've been making for three and a half years and they don't look like they're going anywhere. Uh, they're getting worse, in fact. <laughs> and uh, I think that a couple of things we made, you know, some drawings I made at the beginning. When I came here, actually, at the beginning of the summer, are working out really nicely. And so that, that's, that, that's, you know, from whatever amount it is, we'll only end up with a small number of works that are really really what I want to make, what I'm really interested in, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, then you, do you, are there works you don't finish or, you, I mean, just throw away in the end? The majority. The majority doesn't get finished. The majority doesn't get, I mean, trash it. We have to, you know I mean? Because otherwise uh, some things hang around for a while because I think uh, they may, they may <laughs> sort of relive, but I mean, uh, rekindle something. But I mean, no, a lot of stuff just gets dumped, yeah. I mean, even in the process of doing things, you're losing stuff all the time. You know, you aim for that and you get there and think, no, keep going. No, keep going. So there's chains of events. I mean, if you make a, if you make a work, you have to understand a little bit about making sculpture. You're making not just, that's why I'm not a conceptual artist. I'm a working sculptor. In the process of making a drawing or making a sculpture, there are hundreds and maybe even thousands of decisions you can make along that chain. A lot of them are tiny ones, but some are big ones. Some are like really branches on a tree of ideas, if you like. And if you take, when you're making the work, you can generally only take one path. So you end up, whatever the end result is, uh, that's the, end, the, the, the result of all those different decisions you've made, that chain of decisions. But the fact is, after the work is finished, I have this idea of, yes, but if, if I'd taken the other option, the other path, which was, could have equally been equally good, I would have ended up with a completely different uh, thing. You know, and it's, it's really a different thing with a different feeling and a different function and a different meaning, and that would be really, you know, so, so then 
uh, I'm keep that memory and and uh, and maybe in, the, the, in necessarily the next work, but in following sequence of works, I might go back to that 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 junction of decisions that that I missed the last time and go back. Not because it's better or worse, but because I'm interested to see where it leads me. So I'll go back and I'll work that chain of thought through again. So I end up on the thing. You know, it's like molecules, you know, as they always think chemistry is fantastic because, you you know, you have these enormous, you know, sort of, well, chemistry anyway, but I mean, from simple, you know, who can believe from simple minerals and elements, you know, we're sitting here having an interview. How did that happen? I mean, it's a lot of, it's of devices and things. Material itself is so amazingly complicated and strong and, 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 and powerful in its, in, in its, in, in what it, what it can do. Uh, and I'm not a religious person, but I mean, continually you ask yourself, why, how can these elements just make all of this stuff? You know, did you see that bird that just flew by? How, how did this, how did just dust and dust and minerals turn into a bird flying by my window? You know, it's, so I'm, I'm this is kind of amazing, but that's, so even in a micro sense, you're looking at a, you know, you see, there's lots of organic molecules and they're like big sort of, sculptural forms in a sense they occupy space and i think but if you change that form then you've changed the fo- the molecule you've made a new substance it would be a different substance with a different name and a different function and it and so and so even on a microscopic level that's that's it's it's the whole thing is very sculptural right from the beginning to the end have you ever been religious Well, you know, I used to sing in the choir, you see. So, I mean, then, then you know, you can, uh, I think you learn enough about the background of the church to actually not be that interested in it, no. But is there anything magical with your art or well, how would you, how would you describe it? I would hope so. I'm, I'm, I mean, the idea of um, this enormous, I mean, just the, the idea of, of, being sitting here and as reflective intelligences being aware of our own existences is something so all of this stuff you one one has to wonder what is the driving force behind it you know so what how where and whatever that is i don't choose to call it god because that has too many connotations that i don't i don't really that i can't accept but i mean uh I think respect uh, is more important. Respect for the situation we're in, what we are, uh, is more important. Now, I think, but that's something in life, isn't it? I mean, you see, human existence uh, uh, is. Most people, we have these fantastic. I mean, people ask me, what's the most interesting material for making sculpture? The most interesting material is the human neuron, the brain, because that is what makes everything. There is no blue and red. Blue and red are qualities that we make in our brains there is no time say the physicists so time is something we actually make with our own with our own brains so the most incredible in a hierarchy of materials from salt simple minerals and elements up to uh, complicated minerals to organic things to living molecules to thinking molecules in this chain of things obviously we 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 temporarily occupy the prime position in that so really sculpture is meaningless without us without our, us being able to think about it so i think that's really and to be it and but most people you see unfortunately you have this terrible feeling that 
most human beings spend their life head down, just about managing to earn the money they need to feed their families or buy a car, buy the food, keep pay the rent, uh, go on holiday once a year, all these things. And it's very saddening. And then if, when people do really start to think about things, then they start to get religious. And I think that that's, okay, but that, what that is, religious is like an already uh, formulated packet of beliefs. And the thing is with belief is that, I mean, we know certain things, but we don't know that much. And so beyond the horizon of what we know, then we believe. We all have to believe, you know. And so belief is an essential part of human existence. But I don't want to be told how, what to believe. And I don't want it pre-formulated for me. And I think uh, art is, is a fantastic way of understanding not just the framework we live in, but it's, it gives you an insight, a sort of inkling, if you like, of what's beyond the framework of what we know. You know, and so gives you other possibilities because there are many more things that do not exist yet that do not exist than things that do exist. And so that's that's what I think. Well, for that's what sculpture is about for me. That's what our art is about for me. Thank you very much for listening. In the next episode, I will continue to talk with Tony Cragg. It would be a pleasure if you would like to listen. This podcast is produced by the production company Ton Treff.